Okay, you ready to start this show? Uh, your host of the evening is a really funny dude. Um, I forgot his last name, but I've seen him before, and he's really funny. Uh, give it up for Mike. Coming to you live on tape from the lucky 13th floor of a commercial high-rise in beautiful Beverly Hills adjacent California. From the studios of Sirius XM West, boasting an obstructed view of the world-famous Hollywood sign, this is The Tully Show. I am your host, Mike Tully. Joining me today, a musician who burst into the public consciousness as the lead singer of Four Non Blondes, and then reinvented herself as one of the elite behind-the-scenes figures in pop. Today, she joins me to discuss Served Like a Girl, a documentary about our nation's female veterans. Hello, and truly lovely to meet you, Linda Perry. Hi, thank you for having me here. Thanks for coming by. I have a question that I have actually wanted to ask you for decades, I suppose. Great. What is it? I can't wait. I went to see Aerosmith on tour mm-hmm. in I was early 90s, and I had awful seats, the ones they shouldn't actually sell that are like behind the band. Right. Oh, yeah. You know. So I was like, <laughs> a- later on able to see the keyboardist that Aerosmith didn't want you to know was out on stage right. with him. And Four Non Blondes opened, and somewhere during, it may have even been the closer of your opening set, you said, Here's the song that's going to be on our next album, and it was called You Need It Bad. Uh-huh. And I was like, okay, I already like this band, but that song is incredible. Sign me up right. for the next Four Non Blondes album. Yeah. And then that album did not materialize, at least that song. So what, what happened there? Well, it, you know, I think that a lot of things that happen with the band, people don't realize, but, you know, you're dealing with, you know, four four entities four mm-hmm. different energies and i was really when i joined four non blondes well there was a the, the band was already a band yeah and then their singer left and then i came in and then we just changed the name um so i really didn't i've never been in a band before i always played acoustically i was kind of getting a name around san francisco on my own play my own songs so when I joined the band, I just thought it was going to be fun. And it was until it was like so you had to be like this democracy, you know, like everything had to be voted and everything's like, if I'm going to sing, I want to sing because I want to sing. I, I had a very rebellious attitude about it, shall, shall I say. And then the band had a lot of issues about me getting all the attention. Sure. And I you know, was trying to explain to them, I think this is just the way it goes. I think everybody knows that the singer gets more attention than the bass player, you know. And um, so when we went through our run, we got really big. You know, our label didn't want us to go out on the road with um, Aerosmith. And I said, we are so, they, no one thought we were going to get that gig, first of all. I said, we're we're going on tour with Aerosmith. I don't care if it kills me, I'm getting us that gig. It was outside of the box. It was yeah. cool for everybody. And so... Jackal, remember Jackal? I do, with the chainsaw, yeah. yeah, They were opening up for them and getting booed off, and it was just like a terrible situation. Well, good. And so when we got the gig, everybody was like, you're going to, they're going to eat you alive, you know? And after we did the tour, I mean, we just went number one. Like Like, that tour really elevated us. So when we started making the second record, we were in the studio, and honestly, I didn't want to be in the studio making a second record with this band because I wanted to now, I found my musical style. I was a little darker. I wanted to do Dark Side of the Moon. 
you know, and they wanted to do bigger, better, faster, more again. And so we had a lot of creative conflict. So I ended up saying, listen, you can have all the songs. I'll help you find a singer that can sing like me and deliver, but I can no longer be in this band. And when I said that, the label dropped everybody except for me, and they kept me, and I freaked out. I'm like, what? You know, so anyways, that's kind of what happened. We actually recorded an album. It just never saw the light of day because I left. Yeah, I guess that I guess that happens. It was a it was there were some really great songs on there, and that was one of the songs on it. That that was actually my favorite song to sing. Yeah, I can still picture you from behind yeah. singing it. And we had some really great songs on it, and um, the label was extremely happy, but they were a little unhappy when I said I can't do it. And, of course, but you know what they was, broke a band. They wanted to keep selling. Basically, the what was cool though is that they did let me out. You know, eventually. Here's an incredibly dumb question: Did the wor- I was a little young, maybe when when it came out. Did the world know that you were not a heterosexual person when the band, when Fortnite Blondes was really big? Yeah, I was on. Um, when I was, let's see, I don't know which. I think it was like, oh, it was David Letterman. Um, you know, the the label was funny because I mean I've always been out, and when yeah. we do interviews, I would, people would go. Um, it's funny when you're actually honest about it, they don't want to talk about it. So, like, the, we do these interviews, and they would say, So, you know, Linda, what do you do like when you're not on tour? And I said, Well, usually I like to stay home with my girlfriend and we watch movies. And then they'd be like, like, couldn't believe I was just that open and said it. And then they would quickly go to Roger, you know, our guitar player, and go, Roger, uh, what do you do when you... And then Roger go, Linda and her girlfriend you would come over and uh-huh. watch movies, you know? And so they would they couldn't escape. It was really weird, actually. Right. Like, I gave them the information that they would beat down and try to sneak and try to, you know, yeah. get from me. Had but, you concealed it, yeah, it would have been a story. Exactly. So... Anyways, we went on David Letterman, and I had a guitar. I didn't do it for that show. My guitar, my acoustic guitar said Choice, and it said Dyke. That's a clue. You know? And so when we were doing rehearsals, the producers came up to me afterwards and said, So, um, you know, there's this really amazing vintage uh, guitar shop right down the street that a lot of artists go to and we were wondering we'll you know pay for you to get you know whatever guitar you want and I'm like well why would I get another guitar this is my guitar like well maybe your statement is a little much for our show and I said which one choice or dyke you know and she's like well the 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 last one I'm like dyke you know you know and, and I kept saying it and the woman was very uncomfortable I said listen um this is my guitar this is what I play. I didn't do this to make a statement to, for your show. This is who I am. You guys invited us. Either me and my guitar are going to be on the show, or if my guitar isn't on, I can't be on. And then she's like, okay. And then goes back and comes back and says to our manager, okay, everything's okay. So in my mind, they're just going to stay off of my guitar. Right. right? A lot of tight shots. And it's so weird. Again, they started on my guitar and panned out. <laughs> uh-huh. And it's like, oh, and then that just quickly I learned very fast that people just want to push you. They want to push to see how far you go. And the more you stand strong, right. they're not gonna they're not gonna bug you. They're actually gonna be with you. You know, because they when you see somebody who's not gonna budge, there's only one thing you can do. You can only join, you can either join with them mm-hmm. or just walk away. 
Right. Those are your choices. Yeah. You can't push someone who you can't push. I'm really fond of, and I don't think I would be a fan of General Patton had I been around when he was an active member of the military. He doesn't right. seem like my kind of guy, but there's a quote that George Steinbrenner, baseball owner, another guy I'm not super fond of, was fond of quoting, which is, lead, follow, or get out of the way. Yep. And I heard that years ago, and for some reason it stuck, and now I'm I'm not a that kind of guy, but I'm like, seriously, yeah. either you can follow me, or you can show me a better way, yeah. or you can just shut the hell up about all of yeah. this, because it doesn't doesn't work for you. But to- we, you know, we, we go through this all the time. It's not anything new. I mean, it's happening right now. Mm-hmm. You know, people like to push to see how far they can go, and right. if you let them move you a little bit they're going to come back and they're going to try to push you again and then they're going to keep moving you and moving you and moving you until your back is against the wall and you have no more power because now you just showed that you have no boundaries right you know it's just that's just the way it is so especially with bullies you know yeah bullies but you know but remember people bullies are being bullied too that's you know, I think that's very, very important for people to understand because I think our natural reaction towards bully people, especially kids in school, you know, it's like it's like these kids are probably getting beaten. They're getting bullied by their parents yeah. or somebody, mm-hmm. you know, so we we all I mean, to me, I always come from kindness. I always extend a hand of kindness with the situations like that. Yeah. Bullying never comes from a place of happiness. No, that's, it, does it, not. it would be impossible. So you can't take it really that personal. Right, right, right. So. The movie, Served yes. Like a Girl. This is really powerful stuff. Congratulations. I don't know how hands... I know you didn't direct the movie. Yeah. Lisa but... Haslove directed the movie. And it just tells some stories of some some female veterans, and it's challenging for a lot of veterans who come back to become reintegrated into society and the economy and all that, but this happens to be about about women. I'm curious what drew you to the subject matter. Everybody cares about veterans and homeless people, but why did did this personally resonate for you in any way? You know, what's strange about this is like, usually like when people run around and go, I fought for our, your country. I fought for our rights. I'm like, I didn't ask you to. I usually have kind of an a-hole approach about, you know, people in the military. It's like, I didn't ask you. Don't come here with your, you know, preaching, you know, how you're fighting for me, you know. But when Lisa Heslov showed me, she showed me 15 minutes of this and told me about it. And Lisa's the director. And um, she followed these women around for two years. And I was so moved by them. You know, these stories of these women who've done two or three terms. And then they come home. They were captains. They were... They were in charge of million dollar, you know, you know, billion dollar, you know, tanks and and planes and guns and, you know, were being leaders and they were getting food and they were had a bed to sleep in. And then they come home from all that and they can't collect any benefits. They come home. They have no home left. They have they are homeless. They have their children. They have to go to welfare. They collect $300 a month. That's their worth for, you know, putting their lives on the line. And they get absolutely no support. And, you know, and I'm not saying that the men, veterans, get great support because we all know they don't either. Right. But at least they get something. These women aren't even acknowledged, you know. And the reason why the government won't acknowledge it, well, they are now, kind of, but... They don't want to acknowledge it because they don't want everyone to know that your mom, your daughter, your girlfriend, your wife is carrying a gun, 
standing on the line and getting killed and shooting people. So, so they didn't want to talk about female veterans. They didn't they want, want to talk, talk about, about female soldiers. women in, you know, going, doing this, you know, and, you know, they, they don't want to show women in this light. And, you know, it's funny because in the film you start watching it and, you know, obviously these women are, you know, fighting. They're like on enemy lines getting shot at and in very compromising positions, very dangerous. And clips in the news of, you know, the government, you know, coming in going, well, we're we're starting to, you know, we're going to allow women to fight, you know, online. And then these women are watching this going well, what do you think we've been doing, you know, doing our nails this whole time? I have been in active war. Like, these women for years have been in war. So, anyways, that's what moved me about the film because these these stories, these the, uh, was so strong to me, and I, I wanted to be of service. Right. Well, yeah, there's second-generation military women yeah. in the— and not second-generation because their dad was in it, second-generation because yeah. their, their mom was yeah. in it. There's What makes the movie is the people, obviously, mm-hmm. but the, the, how— these how are these people found so there's the there's a veteran who is i forget if she's a nurse or an anesthesiologist yeah rachel who's also a redskins cheerleader cheerleader yeah that's yeah well she incredible. wasn't anymore after she yeah. um because she got her illness but i i so basically um there's a uh miss veterans america mm-hmm. um and it's a beauty pageant that was designed to just bring awareness to the fact that women are struggling, you know, coming back from uh, war and homeless, sexual harassment, um, you know, trauma. And so this pageant was designed just to bring awareness Give the I lo- girl I, something. Right. I love know? that because usually you have the pageant winner and then she goes, oh, here's what my cause is going to be. Yeah. Here you had a cause. cause. And yeah. so you made a pageant so that you could have a representative of the cause. Yeah. It's a great idea. And and then, you know, Jazz Booth, um, she's the one that, you know, started this. And so basically Lisa's friend showed her, you know, the, the what was going on and showed her the pageant. And she's like, oh, my God. I got, she had no idea, you know, the 55,000 women veterans are out on the street right now, homeless, 55,000 women that are veterans are out on the street right this moment. And it could be actually more right now. Um, and some most with children. And so Lisa wanted to make a film about this. So when she started, um, bringing in kind of what you'd say, I guess, getting information, um, uh, you kind of start casting who's out there. She f- said she followed the women that were at, you know, when the camera was on, they were still as real as they were when the camera was off. It's very candid. You know, that they, they didn't change. And so that's why she chose the women she chose. They were exactly the same whether camera was on or not. And then that's why you don't really see the the end result, you know, the winner like who cares? Like it was like the pageant part of this film really is kind of just it's it's not really an important part. It's, it's like the mechanism that yeah, holds the it's, stories it's, together. Exactly. It's it's the it's the through line, and um, so you know, and it's not a downer. This this film is like 
you know, it, it's it's telling you about these things that are going on. There's some very funny situations. There's great music in it. And, you know, it, it's very hopeful at the end. You're not, you don't want to go, you know, you're, you're not walking out of this film going, oh, God, that was just so heavy. It's like, it's heavy, but it's not. It's like hopeful. No, and there's there's humor. I had no idea how many uh, service people, both men and women, had sex toys mailed to them when they yeah. were fighting overseas. Right. <laughs> and the... The movie shows outside of the, the you know the stuff that it's about, like Wait, women. Let's we'll go back to the, do men really need sex toys? Well, I don't personally, right? But some seem to like what? Like, give me an example. Uh, well, definitely, guys would want dildos. There's that guy. Maybe not a ton of really? them in the military, but maybe more than you'd okay. think. All right. And maybe maybe there's maybe there's gay guys in the military. Maybe there's straight right. dudes who still like putting things in their butt. I don't know. <laughs> maybe there's the guy who can't. Because I'm guessing there's obviously not a lot of sex among the men and women, which is right. why the women need, want the vibrators or whatever. So guys would be getting, you know, sleeves and what right, have you. Right. Trying to. I don't mean them. to be a downer, but a lot of women get raped. Yeah. You know, a lot of the coworkers, a lot of the the service, the girls get raped, and there it's their word against the guy's word. So just let you know, not downing, but that happens very often. Mm-hmm. It's not a um, nobody not knows this. Um, my right. question, I've always this is a big question for me. Mm-hmm. You had I, I've had this question for decades. Yeah, I always think a guy would somewhat get turned on when they see a girl yawn. Does that ever happen? Do you know? Like you see an open hole, you're like just want to poke it in there. Like does that? No. Anybody feel that way? Anybody out there? Like I'm, you, you see a girl yawn, you just want to, you know, put something in it. Well, well, we can compare the tweets that we get on this. <laughs> That's I've never gotten that one. I am the most. Yeah, I want to dying to hear this. I'm the most mainstream, like <laughs> kinkless person. I, I I actually the more the older I get, I live in fear that one day. Pandora's box is going to be open right. and it's going to turn out that I'm actually the most deeply kinky person who's ever lived and I had to like separate myself to hide that right. from myself right. because no honestly like I like a girl licking ice cream I mean it's really the corniest most the 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 the, the, the stuff that a, a, a an 11 year old boy I, that, could come I don't up know with. why I think I'm sure about there's a guy that. out there who's into that feels, I'm, I'll, does that do girl, anything for you no when I see a girl yawn I think about no it does something it makes me think of that like I wonder if a guy thinks that's sexy because they see an open whole but that might be just a sexist thing i'm saying anyways moving on i will never look at a yawn the same way again is just ridiculous, i don't i don't right? believe I don't that i'm how res- we got here oh, well i think you took it there i don't believe I'm <laughs> well responsible. you said sex toys i did bring up sex yeah, toys and it, of course where you think i'm gonna go with that well and now i'm gonna bring up something else that okay. god knows where you'll take this go ahead women are represented in this movie in ways beyond the fact that they're you know veterans and what have you that you don't often see them on screen they're they're real and they're just different and i'm thinking of the mom who leads by talking about the rooster that bit her nipple off oh, that, yeah. as she revenge ate for dinner but that's like a metaphor to me for all the women in this don't seem like women you see in movies or women you right. see on tv and it's easy to say well they seem like real women yeah but i don't even know a whole lot of real women who yeah. are like the women in this they're just unusual individuals yeah i saw like what was well that's what sold me a lot about the movie as well is i just like the characters so much and then when i we did a screening at south by southwest mm-hmm. and these women all showed up all the main characters showed up and i was like literally like 
I'm I was in awe. I mean, first of all, they're all super tall, and I'm short. And um, Jazz even lifted me up over her head like a you know barbell, like she was lifting a weight. It was like embarrassing, but you know, oddly, I, I was okay with it. Um, but it was like I felt like you know I forgot that they're not stars. You know, they're not actors. They weren't playing a role. They they were these characters because it was so real. And that's what I loved about the film. It's like. It just seemed like a very real situation, but it, they were so charismatic through the whole documentary. It's like, wait a minute, you know, are they? It was like, no, these are real people, and they're just living their truth. And when you can captivate, you know, capture that on film, like that's why, you know, you know, applause to Lisa because she really did capture these women in such a beautiful way. Like they, they were having problems, but they weren't. They weren't damsels in distress. They weren't victims. They weren't weak. They were having problems. They're looking for ways out, you know, helping each other. They were, you know, um, like Jazz keep kept saying, you know, when I signed on, I promised to never leave another soldier behind. And she has maintained that and all the way through, like she, her and Lisa just were in Washington trying to change, you know, the wording for, for veteran women, you know, for veterans in general and get a new bill passed. And like, it's constant. So, you know, this, this movie is, is constantly giving, you know, and it came out on Veterans Day and, you know, um, we released a soundtrack, you, you know, do you mm-hmm. know about the soundtrack? Yeah, we're going to talk about that as well. Okay. Yeah. So anyways, but you go ahead. So I guess... My final question really about the movie itself is what do you want people's takeaway to be other than like actual activism that might happen in terms of changing hearts and minds? What would you like their takeaway to be? You know what? I really didn't think about what the takeaway is. I I think it's just more about, you know, it's more about just awareness and seeing that you know that the government isn't always on our side and i think that it we really have to stand up and question things more and perfect example is just the times we're living in right now you know it's like this country and the world is very awake right now. I mean, we are wide awake. And I think it's just that. Just be awake. Go show. Go watch this film. You know, go f- support it. it. It is really about Final Salute. Final Salute is the charity that, you know, helps these women get homes, um, help them find jobs, do whatever. That's all to support these women. So it's not really the movie. I can't say except for, you know, besides, you know, supporting it it's all about supporting it it's all about supporting these women so the government can start being aware that this is a problem and that they need to start supporting these women it's it's just so insane out of all the things for the government to neglect the government neglecting neglecting marginalized people who don't vote and for who, who, that nobody votes on the behalf of yeah. is i mean can't be all yeah. that surprising we're we're adults here 
the, the military. Yeah. It just seems like it would be good politics yeah. to take care of veterans, and yet yeah. it's so often and they not. and they don't. You yeah. have the biggest budget, you know, the biggest military budget. It's everybody else's budget put together, but you don't have money to, for beds yeah. for them when they come exactly. home. It's ridiculous. So I want to talk to you about music, and I want to talk to you about the soundtrack. It is star studded, and uh, you co-wrote the song that um, Pat Benatar recorded. Yeah, the song "Dancing Through the Wreckage" is. Um, the end title track, mm-hmm. uh, Pat Benatar and Neil Gerardo, her husband, and I wrote the song specifically for the movie, and it was a really great experience working with Pat. She's such a punk rocker still after mm-hmm. all these years. Mm-hmm. Her attitude is amazing, and you know, mind you, this is heartbreaker. Hit me with your best shot. Hell is for children. Love is a battlefield. I mean, yeah. this woman has been you know, right up there standing on a platform supporting women from day one. So I want to talk to you about songwriting because I'm I'm a songwriter. I'm maybe probably not a very good one, but I'm a very avid <laughs> one. And I feel like it's something that we don't talk about when they interview, you know, you too. They want to ask Bono about his sunglasses, but they don't want to ask where the new song came from when the his success rests on the fact that he makes songs that people right. like. So I guess I want to ask you about your process in, like for example, say this song was this? Is this an idea that you had? Is this a song that Pat Benatar and Neil had? Is this something you came up with together? When I watched the film for the first, I only saw fifteen minutes. Mm-hmm. That's all she had. She only had fifteen minutes to show me because the edit wasn't done, it, the movie wasn't done, and I watched it. I believe at two o'clock in the morning, and um, I got up, and my whole my you know the kids are asleep. And I had, I grabbed my guitar and I went all the way in the art room. I shut the door and I came up with the idea. And I just recorded it on my iPhone and left it till the next day. And then um, I kind of started putting it together. And then Pat Benatar called me up to work on, write a song with her for the uh, Million Women's March. And she wasn't going to be able to be a part of the march, and she was on tour. She was going to be out of the country. Said, I really want to write a song to show my support and show the girls that I'm here. And we, so she came in, never met her before. We wrote this awesome song. And then I was like, oh, no brainer, Pat Benatar. You know, of course, she's the person that should be singing the song. What a better, I mean, there. who else are we going to get? Pat Benatar, you know, like a fucking legend, you know, yeah. that's going to do the song with me. So I asked her if she wanted to do it. Her, her and her husband came in another day and we, you know, I took my idea, played it to them and we finished it, wrote lyrics and that was it. And then Lisa was over, overjoyed. I mean, like when I told her Pat was going to do it, she was like, are you kidding me? Like, she's like, I couldn't have thought of it. She wanted me to do it, sing it. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to sing it. You know, and, um, and it was perfect, you know, Pat. And so, I mean, it really, it was one of those things that like, you couldn't ask for anything better to happen. And because um, she's just so strong and so, you know, such a, you know, her again, she's got such a punk rock rebellion attitude. So um, I'm really happy with the song. She hasn't been on the charts in 33 years. The song is number 17 right Mm -hmm. now. Congratulations. And um, people are responding. And, you know, situations like this, having Sirius XM be a part of it, it's it's so helpful. 
so needed and it's so important. So it she's climbing up the charts right now and we're doing great. We're going to play the song um to do our part when when we wrap this interview. Is that the way that you typically write? Do you get do you get a little hook that's just falls from you know, heaven? It 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 no, I mean honestly like yeah, I I I always consider it kind of like I'm channeling something or you know, my my thing is I always think like the song is already pre-written and I'm just stumbling on the play button and I it, it's letting it's like it's OK, play it now. It's time. And then I play the song because the melody, the music comes, the melody comes and the lyrics start showing up. So I just literally pick up a piano or, or go to a piano or pick up a guitar and I'll just start writing and I'll just be live like this and I'll just start ad-libbing and all of a sudden here comes a song. But it's very emotional for me. Like writing writing a song comes from a very emotional place. I have to allow myself to go there. If I'm like in the middle of something and my focus is off, I can't sit down and write a song, you know. Um, I, I'm not going to go, okay, I'm going to write a song at 1.20 BPM. It's going to be about grandma and getting on a bus and getting her groceries. And I want it, this to appeal to, like, I don't know, um, Demi Lovato audience and blah, blah, blah. I Like, I'm not that girl. There's a shitload of people that write like that, yeah. but I'm not one of and them. And a lot of them make a lot of you money know? doing and it. And I don't want to write music that way. It's not my style. I just, it, I just write. And I don't know if it's going to be good or not. I don't edit myself. I think, you know, one important thing I could tell anybody that is listening right now that's a songwriter, you can't edit yourself while you're writing. You know, you just write the song. Just let it be what it is because sometimes what happens is you start overcooking the song. You start, oh, you doubt yourself. Just trust that your instinct is way smarter and more on it than you are. The head does not work well when it comes to the creative. You just got to just open it up and go. And when you're like going, oh, is this weird? No, that's just too weird. Just keep going. Just write the friggin' song. Worry about it later. But finish the song because all the editing and all the doubting is what cock blocks you from actually finishing the song. Do you finish? Like, do you? I feel always like, finish my songs. Uh, do, do, but do you do you feel like you have to? Like, can you say, "Oh, that's like a great chorus, and I uh, got a verse, and I might even know where the bridge is going to go." But anyway, it's lunchtime. That's pretty good for now. Do you feel like you can? Like Neil Young, famously, if he gets an idea for a song, he doesn't put the guitar down, and you can't talk to him until he finishes the yeah. song. Frankly, not as a, as a, somebody who's not a huge fan, I feel like you can kind of hear that sometimes. Yeah. Maybe they could use a little more baking in the yeah. Easy Bake Oven. I, for me, a song is really not done until you record it and it's out there in the world. So I'll write songs all the time. I can, you know, um, wrote a song yesterday and I, I'd like to get the idea down because yeah. my, my, I work very quickly. My, my, I, if I don't do it now, I'm going to forget it. So I get it down, and then when we start recording it for whoever, you know, and I'll start hearing the lyric or the person because what someone else comes in with when they when you have another singer start singing a song, you could start hearing like, oh, I can deliver that word, but she doesn't do it right, so I have to re reapproach the lyrical content, you like know writing I mean? a movie script for a star. You gotta, yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah. It's like you have to just reword things, and sometimes certain melodies that work for me aren't going to work for somebody else. So it's like. You just kind of, you know, you're just, it's always creating. You're always, we're always creating. You're always just moving it around. It's like clay, you know, you're building something. It's just like you put it on the little spinny and you, you mold it to what you want. And as soon as it dries, that's it. That's what you got, you know? When you wrote, uh, speaking of writing for other people, when you wrote 
a song like, say, Beautiful, did you know, do you have a good sense that that was a hit song? Can you ever really know if something's a hit really, song? I don't really, you know, I've never really looked at things like that. Beautiful, when I wrote it, it, it came from a very, very vulnerable place of truth for me. It's like, you know, it, from the state, from the real state of like, you know, I'm, you know, um, I'm not, you know, I'm ugly. I'm, I don't feel good about myself. I'm you know, whatever. And so when Christina, you know, wanted to sing it, I was looking at her, this like, you know, young little hot chick, you know, and I'm like going, what do you know about, yeah, you, you know, a, I, you, you know, like you can't say that, you know, you don't know what this song is about. You are beautiful, you know? And then when I started to get to know her a little bit, I'm like, oh no, she's, she actually doesn't believe that in her inside. She's very fucked up. She's very, you know, insecure, very vulnerable, a lot of fear. So that made the song bigger to me because now it took it out of just my vulnerability of, oh, this is actually, you know, you know, aesthetically or whatever, it, uh, my personal experience. And it made it like, no, this is a bigger thing. A lot of people struggle with this whether they don't think their mind is beautiful or their body or their face or their you know voice or their life or whatever it is there's a lot of insecure people running around that you wouldn't think should be insecure and christina was a great one because you look at her it's like pop stars got everything she's hot she's fresh she's She's a genie in a bottle yeah you know what i mean she's successful what is she talking about? Mm-hmm. Oh, no, she's not. She's unhappy. That having been said, though, do you ever regret not... Do you think Linda Perry, the solo artist, has a big hit if you do that song for yourself, and do you therefore regret not ta- you know, continuing that branch of your career? No, not at all. I'm so, so happy the choices I've made in my life. It seems like you're living the dream. I love it. I'm, I'm in way more control here. I mean, I know what it's like to be an artist, and I'm um, not saying that artists don't have control, but I definitely feel better in the role that I've decided to, um, the hat I yeah. decided to wear. It's a great hat, and Thank you, you and you much. and you wear it well. You are actually wearing a hat. I should point out. Uh, it, any regrets? I always wear a hat. One last uh, question: Do you ever have any second thoughts about unleashing James Blunt on the world? Do I have second thoughts? Yeah. You know what's funny about James? Um, I went to, I went to England, and I said I got to go figure out what's going on over there because music sucks over here. This is I don't know what 2012 maybe I think it was. Um, maybe 2010, something like, I don't know what it was. What are we in? 18? Yeah, it was like Round 2010. About. It was something Round like about, that. Yeah. 2009, 10. You know you've made it when you don't know what year it yeah. is. Um, so, um, I was, so I went to UK because my theory was when the m- music is good over there, we're over here in America trying to beat it and compete. So it makes the music good over here. So I wanted to go over there and hear what they were doing because the music sucked over here. I think Lady Gaga may have been doing the same you know, thing right around that same right? time. Okay. So I went out there and then I started listening to, you know, I went in labels and they're just playing me. I'm like, I just want to hear what you got cooking over here. They start playing me stuff. I'm all, you know, like, you know, it's just like, this is terrible. You know, no wonder our music sucks. And so then um, uh, her name was Linda Perryman played me I, I think that was her or something yeah it was almost like my name I um, mean she played me this kid and she's like I have this artist every label passed on his name is James Blunt so she plays me these demos and I'm like going God, he sounds like Barry Gibb I love this but I don't but I do you know like I had this like love-hate relationship with it but I'm like I gotta meet this guy I want to sign him and she's like 
well, everybody's passed on him. I'm like, I don't care. She's like, well, we thought you could write with him. I go, this guy doesn't need me to write with him. He needs a label. He needs a he needs to make a record. So I get, sign him. We go make, I say, who do you want to work with? Tom Rothrock. Go to Tom Rothrock. Makes the record. He gets passed on again. So he's on my label. But then, you know, you need distribution. You need to go to another label, right? Sure, yeah, yeah. Gets passed on by everybody again. That Back to Bedlam album. I go back to UK. I go to um, Max, you know, and Corda over at uh, uh, East West Records, which is an Atlantic company. And I say, listen, I need help with this guy. This guy's going to be huge. And they were like, do you like him? I'm like... Personally, no. I mean, I don't. But this guy's going to be huge, you know. And like, I'm literally like saying that, right? You know. And I'm yeah. like, you know, it's like it's not my thing, you know. And but this voice, the girls are going to go crazy, yeah. right? So we t- basically for three years build him over in Europe, and then to a point to where when he came to America, I mean, we sold 12 million records when people weren't selling records That's at right. all. Yeah, it was. It was a big, it was big. Like, when that guy blew up, it was huge. Yeah, it was pretty inescapable. Nobody was selling records. But I was just like, you know, wow, God, I totally had an... In-. But it was his voice. Mm-hmm. It was that voice. It was that Barry Gibb, you know, squirrely little voice. And, you know, and he was very humble, but not, you know, and cute, but not too cute. You know, he's short. You know, it's just like there was a yeah. whole thing. Yeah, there's a, there's always a place in the market for you that. You know what I mean? But... No, I'm not sorry about it because it really did a lot, you know, of stuff and for me. <laughs> Say no more. I have to let you go. There's some people right. that want to talk to you. It really has been a pleasure okay. uh, getting to meet you, Linda Perry. So your song, we're going to play in a second. Let's remind everybody. Yes. Served Like a Girl, the documentary, is streaming now. Uh, Served Like a Girl, the star-studded soundtrack featuring the likes of Pink, Gwen Stefani, and Christina Aguilera, available now as well to take us out the new song, uh, Pat Benatar and Neil Gerardo dancing through the wreckage. Thank you again. Thank you. Walking through the veils of open fire. Looking back at ghosts we left unnamed. Breathing in the strength of my fathers. Holding the hope. While the fearless are standing afraid Hallelujah Hallelujah Now I'm dancing through the wreckage left behind We are back on The Tully Show with an actress whose name is forever linked to what has been called the Citizen Kane of bad movies. The new movie, The Disaster Artist, starring and directed by James Franco, documents the making of the 2003 romantic drama The Room. Today I am joined by Robin Paris, who in addition to appearing in the original movie has created the mockumentary The Room Actors, Where Are They Now? to be released in partnership with Funny or Die on November 30th. Hello. Hello. How are you? Great, thank you. So there are lots of bad movies. There's tons and tons in the world. Mercifully, most of them are instantly forgotten if they're noticed in the first place. Right. When is the first time that you realize that this thing might have some legs? 
Um, let's see. I believe, I would say when I was contacted by Entertainment Weekly for an article that they were writing um, in you 2008. You had no, no clue before? I was, you know, I was tucked away at film school right after, you know, um, I was in the room and went to film school. And no one at UCLA Film School had heard of the room yet. Um, I heard some rumblings from Michael Russole, who is known as Room Fan Zero. Um, he had been a UC, USC student in film when The Room first came out, and he kind of told everyone about The Room and sort of helped generate some of the fans and helped build the fan base. But So I heard some rumblings from him that more and more people were going, and um, actually I got contacted by somebody who lived in New York. Um, who his name's Dave Carker. He uh, wrote for Entertainment Weekly for a long time, and he had just seen seen the room in the theater with Paul Rudd's wife, who is and Paul Rudd were big fans. So my friend Dave Carker called me, and he was like, "I just saw this movie, and you're in it, the room." And I'm like, "Yeah, why is this showing in New York? Why is Paul Rudd a fan? Why is how do they know about it?" So it had been sort of this underground thing building for a while. Yeah, and then when did you realize that this thing like? might never go away probably after maybe the third or fourth uh, article in entertainment weekly about it <laughs> and then articles that were going up in all these other publications yeah. and you google my name and the room pops up and pictures of me from the room and just you know clips on youtube you know youtube mm -hmm. i guess you know, was it like 10 years ago that youtube was founded or you know 12 i don't remember exactly but you know clips started to become available and we just could not get away See, I thought it was just about done, and when the I became aware of it relatively late in the game when Adult Swim used to show it on um, April Fool's Day. Yeah, and I it was it was wonderful because it was really organic. I turned on the TV and was like, "What the fuck is happening on my television right <laughs> yeah. now?" Which is great, you know. Um, but when Greg Sestero is that I say you say his name? Yes. When he wrote the book, I was like, "Okay, now we're really beating." a dead horse here yes bad movie funny you know why 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 lisa great and then i read the book and i was like holy shit this is actually quite a bit better than it really needed to be yeah yeah it was a really good book yeah i, I couldn't put it down it was he humanized funny. the whole thing you yeah. know because i thought oh, yeah. it was going to be cheap shots and i'm always weird about like yes tommy wiseau did this to himself but okay we've all had our fun leave the guy alone yeah. but the book wasn't like that no it really explored the humanity uh, yeah. of tommy and greg and their friendship and i think you ca i came away understanding tommy a lot better mm -hmm. and feeling for him you know <laughs> they really show his vulnerability and that's why i mean the movie is really good too james franco does a great job at capturing that right so now there's the disaster artist the movie with the same name as the book based on the book which i'm sure it's occurred to you for as long as this thing has been going on it might be about to get bigger than it's ever been yeah, just when you think it's it, it can't get any bigger, <laughs> it gets bigger. Yeah, it's strange. Has has Tommy ever thought about just why would you not make the room two at this point? People have asked him. I mean, his character is spoiler oh, alert. Right. Oh, right, I forgot deceased at the end of it. So I think that's such a minor detail. You could do it. Yeah. You could do a prequel. Could be, yeah, exactly. Or he could be a ghost haunting people, which I think would be hilarious. It would probably suit him. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to talk a little bit about your involvement with the original movie. How did you come to be cast? Um, so I responded to an ad in Backstage West, and that um, and they called me in. Greg Sestero called me in. And I auditioned. I got there early because I was in a play in Hollywood, and I met Tommy on set. And he just asked me a bunch of questions about my acting background. And at the end of the conversation, he was like, yeah, I think I hire you. Uh, you, you have a job. And I'm like, what? <laughs> I didn't audition. But it, so I, and I ended up auditioning. More people got there. I auditioned. But I think that's why I got the job, is I was the first one on set, and I talked to Tommy one-on-one. -on -one, yeah. And I think he just decided 
I mean, and the disaster artist shows that a little bit, like the, the audition process was so random, just what Tommy had us doing. And was that accurate? Cause in the movie, it's just, it's, it's comical, you know, pretend you're eating a banana, but you're also, you know, uh, a, 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 you know, the, the czar of Russia. Yeah, that is, I mean, I don't know if Tommy came up with the czar of Russia, but he had <laughs> us doing, you know, you just won the lottery, go. And then he'd want you to be like, oh my God, I won the lottery. And then uh-huh. he'd be like, your best friend just died, go. Like immediately after. Uh-huh. And you were supposed to go from the screaming ecstatic character like, <laughs> my best friend died, you know, crying. Hey, that's acting. And if you didn't do it right, <laughs> he was like, what's wrong with you? Your best friend just died. You have no feeling. <laughs> so this so. might be the answer to my next question. When in the process of after being cast or even before you were a cast or as you were cast, did you start to smell a rat? Pretty immediately. Mm. Um and I smelled a really funny rat, though. Like, it wasn't a stinky rat. It was just really funny and amusing. Yeah. Um, and uh, that was when I came. I had done a callback. Um, Tommy had me come for a callback. And then two, one other actress did that. And then he cast me. I didn't know I was cast until I got a call from Greg saying, how soon can you get to the set? And he's like, we're about to shoot a scene. And we want you in the scene. <laughs> and it was a chocolate as a symbol of love scene. Sure. So I just, you know, I hopped in the car, drove straight to the set. They powdered my nose. I'm wearing the same clothes. Those are my clothes. Wearing, you know, same clothes I had on. Are you excited? On the like set. this is, this is a gig. This is I thought, a movie. Yeah, it's a gig. I'll, you know, it's, I'll get footage for my demo reel and I'll get experience. And then they give me the pages. Cause I never saw the script. They gave me a couple pages. I looked at it for like 20 minutes and then I'm on the set you know, filming chocolate as a symbol of love. And yes, after I filmed it, I was like, yeah, this is really, j- and not, in the, I mean, not, you know, my acting partner or anything like that or the crew, but I just thought the script obviously is really bad. Well, that's one of the <laughs> things that makes it so beautiful is that there, there are so many things. It, it, it almost had, couldn't be so bad if it wasn't so good. It's a professional movie. Yeah, yeah, it's done very professionally. The crew is professional. Yeah, I don't think there's a lot of visible boom mics unless I'm forgetting something. No, and the sound sounds good. And yeah. yeah. It's and and then what are your memories of the the premiere? So the premiere, Tommy had gotten a spotlight, so that was the first thing I noticed driving up to the <laughs> Fairfax, uh, Lamley Fairfax, was this spotlight. Oh, I know where you were. They opened that place up for you guys. It was well, it was still open then. Okay. Yeah. Around the corner from Cantor's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and so I pull up, you know, I park, uh, parallel park, and I <laughs> walk in, and then there's people asking me for my autograph, standing, there's a red carpet. Yeah, who were these people who came to the movie that weren't friends and family? Hired. Hired to ask for our autograph. Oh, well, that was nice of him. Yeah, from a PR <laughs> PR company or whatever. Yeah. And then so Tommy did the do the, cu- the couple laps around in the limo. Before he made before his Before he entrance. got out. Yeah. And then, you know, he had, like, tons of cameras and people, you know, mobbing him, which I think who were also paid. Um, employees to do that so that and then the premiere was <laughs> hilarious it was a ton of people walked out in the first five minutes and he had a lot of press but hadn't he paid for them to be there well the pr- the people he, he invited a lot of press so a lot of those people walked out oh i see uh, okay. but like the other people had to st- yeah we had to stay yeah. but yeah, they were uh, paid to stay as well yeah i'm sure <laughs> <laughs> but people who stayed got a real treat because i i thought it was hilarious my husband and i were literally crying with laughter okay even the next day we woke up and I was like, remember that scene where Kyle gets almost thrown off the, you know, the the roof. And then we both start laughing and crying with laughter again. There are just so many moments like that that we didn't. So I didn't know about like the Tommy humping scene. I didn't. There was a lot I didn't know. So <laughs> yeah, I was equally, the graphic extended. Yes. Sex, yeah. I wish I'd known. <laughs> no, but uh, yeah, there was a ton of stuff that was wonderful uh, surprise for me when I saw the premiere. I don't I'm trying to think of how to ask this question because I don't want to spoil the 
the movie The Disaster Artist. Yeah. But let's just say this. The crowd has a specific reaction in the movie to the premiere at the initial cinematic showing of the movie is how accurate is that to how it really went down? It, it's very compressed. That's not, sure. yeah, that's yeah. not what happened at the premiere. Um, at the premiere, there was a lot of chuckling and a lot of awkwardness. And the party afterwards was extremely awkward because I we bet. knew Tommy intended it to be a searing drama. Yes. And he wanted people crying with, uh, you know, remorse at the end, but mm-hmm. instead everyone was crying with laughter. Right. So I knew it, we, it, we knew it wasn't what he intended. And so everyone felt bad. Of course. Yeah. So that was of more course the not even vibe. for the money, which is substantial, but just he he did. That's the thing you we are sort of told as performers that if you can just really truly open yourself up and show your true self, that that's almost a guaranteed path to you know Brando did that, James Dean did that, and it's like well, but some people's insides are a little bit more appealing to a mass audience than other people's. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's brutal. That's right. a brutal truth of life. It was it was a lot of money and a lot of time and effort put into that movie, yeah. obviously. So that was, I think, quite a surprise to maybe Tommy at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I won't, again, spoil the Disaster Artist movie, but they do a good job at kind of showing how he turned it around a little bit. Yeah. Um, which is what he did. You know, he reinvented the narrative about what this room was supposed to be. And he called it a, you know, comedy after that, dark comedy. Right, right, which which it which it actually is. What is your, when people ask you, what is your go-to anecdote about Tommy Wiseau? Um, so the makeup artists, I knew them pretty well. And uh, I got to set one day and they said, oh, my gosh, you missed it. And I was like, what? And they said, yesterday I had to airbrush Tommy's butt. <laughs> because he was on Tommy had himself airbrushed every day and he had me he wanted wait, me to, what <laughs> yeah not, wait not fake tan airbrushed well I guess he wouldn't be tan he's actually very pale he's very very pale so he's like the reverse fake tan he had freckles and he didn't like them and he oh. hated my freckles too and so he wanted me he's like I when I cast I cast you but I got to airbrush all those freckles out so he would airbrush my freckles and he would get himself airbrushed too or he wouldn't air, you know the makeup artist but so she had to make up, you know, airbrush his backside. Wow. But. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he seems like a guy who I've never heard anybody bring this up who could potentially be creepy, perhaps even like sexually creepy around women. Is Did you have any experiences like that or did you know stuff like that to happen on the set? The only thing I remember about that was there was he gave me a hard time. I was married. I am married. And there was somebody on the crew who liked me or something. And I said, oh, yeah, well, I'm married or, you know, I. I said, oh, what? he's like, why don't you like, you know, whatever it is. I don't even remember who it was. Why don't you like him? What, are you a lesbian or something? And so I was like, you know, if that's that was Tommy. That was very Tommy um, that I felt, you know, he was basically saying, if you don't like the guy, you, obviously there's you're a lesbian. Um, right. So is there any division between the, the Johnny character portrayed in the film as, and, and the, the Tommy who walks among us? Um. I feel like yeah, that's a lot of a lot of Tommy in that character, <laughs> yeah. and I feel like the movie was definitely an autobiographical uh, effort, like some sort of catharsis uh, he was going through by writing that. Yeah, um, and yeah, I think probably this. I think my my character in the movie says a line like this, and I remember having mm-hmm. a theory. That's right. Um, that and I love the actress who who plays you in the movie. Yeah. I forget her name, but she's in all kinds of stuff that I... June Diane Raphael. Yeah. Yeah, and um, yeah, so I do feel like a lot of these characters probably were in Tommy's life in some way, shape, or form. And if you read the Disaster Artist book, you'll get a a sense for 
yeah. some of that. Some of that, yeah. I, I suspect. No, I don't know. Maybe I'm too down on the guy, but I, I suspect there was some tiny little trifling thing that happened that, in his mind, blew up into a much bigger thing. The, we could talk about the plot of the movie, The Room, which is you know a romantic rejection and betrayal and all that. And yeah. I think there probably was a woman in his past that he views in a similar way to the love interest in the movie, but. I wonder if she even remembers meeting Tommy. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> I, I, I agree. I'm sure whatever it was, it's maybe he asked her out. She said no or something. Yes. And now this is, whole movie exists, or uh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. So there's still this mystery around him, and it's absolutely unbelievable. You would think that the movie would be made, and then this cult would grow around it, and then we would just find out everything about him. But he's one of these amazing. There's just a handful of. Um, really enigmatic people. I'm going to go ahead and lump lump Tommy Wiseau in with like a Morrissey kind of guy where you can just keep asking him questions and he'll keep giving you answers and he's not like lying per se, but you'll never actually pin him down. You'll never actually get the direct answer you're really looking for. What do you believe is the truth of his life preceding making the room? Um, yeah, he says he's from New Orleans, which he told us on set. Um, Does he still? He, he must say that with a wink nowadays, at least. He still tries to pull it off. I think I haven't. And has anybody to him brought while, him there to see if he even knows his way around New Orleans? In the book, the disaster artist, it says that he used to live in New that's Orleans. That's right. That's right. Um, I and it mentions in the book that he lived in Paris and then he's from Eastern Europe somewhere. Yeah. Um, so I think that's the story, and I don't know how he got all of his money. Nobody does. I mean, he spent six million dollars on the room. And, yeah, um, and is that even including the billboard that was up? No, for that doesn't include the billboard, which must have cost a fortune. Yeah, and was he, up for years. Yeah, he, prime real estate. Yeah, and then he owns some real estate in San Francisco, right on the pier, too. Doesn't it kind of make you? It makes me feel like, what am I doing wrong? He does not seem like the brightest man who has ever lived, and yet somehow he's a. a, a accumulated way more money than I'll ever have like what does he know financially that I'm never going to figure out yeah I agree I mean he's kind of like a Forrest Gump character (laughs) where he just keeps stumbling into these things I I don't know like I don't like I said I don't know his history but it's amazing it's like just money just seems to fly into his pockets and I don't know where it comes from and how yeah. he does it. Yeah, There's just some people out there that you can't explain, and a, a disproportionate number of them seem to wind up in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. So let's talk about uh, your mockumentary, The Room Actors, Where Are They Now?, which is maybe the first mockumentary that has had higher production values than the thing it was mocking. I, I hope so. Yeah. Well, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the, we're striving for that. Yeah, shoot um, for the stars. Exactly. We uh, did shoot on two reds, and so I think it looks pretty good. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how like had you been in contact with other cast members of the room, or did you reach out to pull this together? Yeah, um, we were doing a book tour, f- not a book tour, but we did a little video for um, Greg's book tour for the Disaster Artist, okay. and it was we got interviewed. So we all kind of got together. That was in 2013, and I had this idea, and I'd written a little bit of it. So I mentioned it to, the, to them there, and Juliet uh, it was Ka- Juliet, Kyle, Carolyn, and Greg, and they all seemed interested. And then so I sent the script to Juliet, and she was interested and so we kind of just went from there and got everyone else on board okay and what what is it if, if you wanted to describe it for people yeah so it is a um it, it, the room actors where are they now it's a satirical look at what happened to seven out of nine of the original actors from the room 
um, as they go through Hollywood and struggle to either embrace or shake the stigma of appearing in the worst movie ever made. And it's mockumentary style. So I took a little nugget of truth from people's lives and exaggerated it. Okay. So have people, and you don't need to name names, have people had... So have some of you had trouble embracing the nature? Have you ever had trouble embracing the nature of it? Definitely. I had a, a hard time with it at first because I, I kind of just wanted to pretend it didn't exist, stick my head in the sand and just be like, it'll go away. And I did that for a while. I had just come out of film school at UCLA and I had a script going around town and it was like, I wanted to be perceived as someone who was good. Yes. And then when you Google my name, it, I, I'm in the worst movie ever made. So how right. can I be like a legitimate person in, in LA trying to you know make it or whatever? So I think that was frustrating for some of the actors. And, and, and for me, I had just a journey. You know, I, I say that I went through the various stages of grief. I was in denial for a while. And finally, I overcame that and moved to acceptance. And then I even moved past that and started embracing it. Right, right. Well, I think, I think you ought to. It's, 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 it's a real legendary thing. You yeah. know, and and also I don't I never felt like the the stink was quite not to just bash Tommy here, but like this I never felt the stink was on the the cast so much as it was on just the overall. Again, what made it so funny was it was basically a, a competently rendered vision uh, a, a version of this demented vision. Right. If it yeah. hadn't been done so competently, it couldn't have communicated as badly as it, as it did you know so true that's the irony of it right it's amazing it's like a i always remember the i've mentioned this a million times on the year but the south park guys said you always wonder why you see so many bad hollywood movies and they said the reason is there's like a thousand people or a couple hundred people that have a job on a movie and the only way to make a truly great movie is for every single person to, like, knock it out of the park. Mm-hmm. And mathematically, that doesn't happen. And they said that's the same reason why you very rarely see truly terrible things, because you need to have that same sort of b- low batting average. And, and most of the time, some people are good, some people are bad, yeah. and you end up with this middle-of-the-road uh, product. So as I'm sure I don't need to tell you, this is uh, it's sort of a mathematical miracle Yeah, that this thing came together the way it did. The right things were good. Right. And then the wrong things were bad, or the right things were bad, you know, however, depending on how you look at it. <laughs> so in conclusion, if you had it to do all over again, would you be in the room? That is such a good question. Yeah, um, I've thought about that, and I think so. I would definitely, I would say yes. I, ultimately, this has brought me a lot of laughter. Mm-hmm. I got the chance to make this mockumentary, and I directed it. So I was first-time director, you know, and that was amazing. Yeah. I fell in love directing, and I want to direct now more yeah. and so I wouldn't have come to that point had I not been in the room and gone through this journey and I've met so many really great fans yes there and people like you mm-hmm. um just that my life would not be nearly as exciting if I weren't in the room so well good for you because I mean this sincerely the movie has brought so many people so much joy the people who are in it deserve to get some joy out of it as well it should not come at your guys's expense oh, thank you yeah so everybody can check out the room actors where are they now when it comes out in partnership with funny or die on November 30th in the meantime you have uh, I didn't write down the website it's um, www.theroommockumentary.com. And if you want to follow us, we're at, at, at The Room Actors on Twitter and Instagram. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you.